Well, back in 2008, the then Prime Minister, David Cameron, remember him? Yeah. He introduced a slogan for the Conservative Party, we're in this together. And what he meant by that was the idea that we have shared responsibility, but he was lampooned by parts of the media that took him to mean the Conservative Party has made such a mess of everything, we really are all in this mess together. <laughs> but what I want to do this morning, no, 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 don't go there. What I, what I want to do this morning is take that phrase in the original positive sense. And uh, the theme that I'm going to be talking about is genuine connection and friendship. I'm interested in looking at how Paul inculcated in the churches that he served a genuine sense of we're in this together. Uh, but some introductory remarks before I get going. Firstly, I don't think any of us need persuading of the importance of genuine connection and friendship. I think all of us are already committed to building relationally in our local context, with our leadership teams, with our local congregations, and so on. But I'm interested in how we apply what we're already doing at a local level to a movement level. I'm interested in, ad in addressing the issue that I face in my own local context, where I know that many of the people in my congregation in Truro feel little or no real heart connection with the, with the big work that we're all engaged in together. I'm interested in addressing the problem that I was speaking to an elder about 10 years ago. He said, from time to time, we send the lead guy and the team off to gatherings, and he comes back encouraged and fired up and pumped up by the time that he's spent in the company of other leaders. But as for the rest of us in the team, we don't feel that we have a part in it. So this isn't just another talk about the importance of building relationally, this is about what we might see happening in our regional hubs and across our movement as a whole. The second thing I want to talk about is that I'm aware of some of us going away from this session thinking, there's yet more things I need to be doing that I'm not doing, and me adding to your to-do list. And for many of us, it feels like it's as much as we can manage right now just to remain meaningfully connected with our local congregations, right? Never mind trying to invest in all these other relationships with other leaders and other members of other churches. And I sympathize with that. I'm not interested this morning in adding to your to-do list, giving you a list of things for you to do that you're not already doing. I simply want us to spend some time in Paul's world and the world of the first century Christians and consider what would it have been like what would it have felt like to be part of that great missionary enterprise? And I, I hope this talk will paint a compelling picture of what can be. And then it's up to you and your teams to go back and consider the particular practices that you might want to adopt. But the leaning of this message is towards inspire, not instruct. At least that's what I'm going for this morning. We'll see how successful I am towards the end. The third thing I want to say is there are dangers in looking to Paul's practices as normative for the church in our day and age, because none of us is the Apostle Paul, right? And our contexts are very different to his context. So we can't draw a straight line between what Paul did and what we're doing today. But, of course, there are things that we can and should learn from his example and his practice. So what I'm doing in this talk is, is taking as my, my springboard, if you like, a a phrase that David Bosch uses. He says we should allow Paul to fertilize our imagination. 
Right, so this morning I'm heaping some manure onto your, onto your imagination, some shovel loads of manure, and then we'll see what grows there. 1 Corinthians 16. I know it's a beautiful image, isn't it? 1 Corinthians 16. Please turn to it in your Bibles. We're going to look at the whole chapter. Uh, just to orientate ourselves, uh, let's, let's have a look at this map. I love maps, don't you? So we're going to be... We're going to be visiting Corinth, that's the red circle over on the left, in the Roman province of Achaia, Achaia rather, uh, in what we would today recognize as the southern part of Greece. And Paul is writing this letter to the Corinthians from Ephesus, a significant city in the Roman, Roman province of Asia, in what we today recognize as Turkey. And then just to give us a little bit of context, so we can get a little bit of the story so far, there's a timeline now that's going to come up. Paul had a hand in founding this church in Corinth. We read about that in Acts chapter 18. And Paul spent 18 months in Corinth. He left Corinth in 51 AD. And then he writes a letter to the Corinthian believers. And we don't have that letter. And then the Corinthian believers wrote a letter back to Paul. We don't have that letter either. But we know that that letter was delivered. We can piece together the the idea that that letter was delivered to Paul by three individuals that are mentioned in passage that we're about to come to, Stephanus, Fortunatus, and Achaicus. And Paul receives that letter from the Corinthians while he's in Ephesus. He's also heard a report on what's going on in the church in Corinth from Chloe's household. Okay, we don't know which way round those two arrows go, but Paul's got a pretty good idea of what's going on in Corinth, having received this communication, having received this report. And so he writes a second letter to the Corinthian believers, and that's the letter that we call 1 Corinthians. That's this letter right here. 1 Corinthians chapter 16. Now about the collection for the Lord's people. Do what I told the Galatian churches to do. On the first day of every week, each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with your income, saving it up so that when I come, no collections will have to be made. Then when I arrive, I will give letters of introductions to the men you approve and send them with your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable for me to go also, they will accompany me. After I go through Macedonia, I will come to you, for I will be going through Macedonia. Perhaps I will stay with you for a while or even spend the winter so that you can help me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not want to see you now and make only a passing visit. I hope to spend some time with you if the Lord permits. But I will stay on at Ephesus until Pentecost, because a great door for effective work is open to me, and there are many who oppose me. When Timothy comes, see to it that he has nothing to fear while he is with you, for he is carrying on the work of the Lord just as I am. No one then should treat him with contempt. Send him on his way in peace so that he may return to me. I'm expecting him along with the brothers. Now, about our brother Apollos. I strongly urged him to go with you. Uh, sorry, I strongly urged him to go to you with the brothers. He was quite unwilling to go now, but he will go when he has the opportunity. Be on your guard, stand firm in the faith, be courageous, be strong, do everything in love. Some of us just a few weeks ago heard Matthew speak magnificently about that passage when we were in Cheltenham. You know that the household of Stephanus were the first converts in Achaia, and they have devoted themselves to the service of the Lord's people. I urge you, brothers and sisters, to submit to such people and to everyone who joins in the work and labors at it. 
I was glad when Stephanus, Fortunatus, and Achaicus arrived because they have supplied what was lacking from you. For they refreshed my spirit and yours also. Such men deserve recognition. The churches in the province of Asia send you greetings. Aquila and Priscilla greet you warmly in the Lord. So does the church that meets at their house. All the brothers and sisters here send you greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss. I, Paul, write this greeting in my own hand. If anyone does not love the Lord, let that person be cursed. Come, Lord, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. My love to all of you in Christ Jesus. Amen. Now, what's remarkable about this is that Paul has a strange relationship with these believers. He's written some hard things in this letter, and yet he just can't help himself. So invested is Paul in this great missionary endeavor, and so, so passionate is he about every believer in all the churches that, with which he's associated, feeling that they've got a part in it too, that he takes this opportunity to instill in the Corinthians a sense of, we're in this together. How does he do it? Five things. We're going to move really quickly. Firstly, finance. Look at verse 1. Paul writes now about the collection for the Lord's people. He's talking about a collection that Paul is personally organizing for the believers living in Jerusalem, in Judea. These believers were experiencing severe financial hardship. We don't know all of the details, but we know that Paul is passionate about raising funds from the churches in the four Roman provinces where he is at work. And this provides the occasion for some of the most incisive and detailed teaching on giving to be found in the New Testament. Because it's the occasion of Paul writing 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9, which we pull out the bag each time we have a church gift day and <laughs> preach on those passages. Now, if we go back to the map, there is Corinth in the Roman province of Achaia. And there, down in the bottom right-hand corner, is Jerusalem in the Roman province of Judea. And a question naturally presents itself. And to paraphrase a famous question from antiquity, what has Corinth to do with Jerusalem? Why should the believers in Corinth feel that they've got any responsibility towards the believers living in Jerusalem? Because the distance between these two places is vast. Geographically, it's vast, 820 miles as the crow flies. Now, to put that in perspective, I live in Cornwall. I mean, Cornwall's miles away from everywhere. <laughs> and in March of last year, we went up to Glasgow, some of us. We were Ian Kennedy and the, and, and the team there. And Glasgow may as well be a million miles away when you're living in Cornwall. I mean, it is a different world. You mentioned Glasgow to people living in Cornwall, they go, well, it's somewhere near the Arctic Circle, isn't it? Just, you know, it's, it's so far away, it barely computes. Now, that distance is a mere 380 miles as the crow flies, less than half the distance that we're talking about. Because if you're traveling from Corinth to Jerusalem, you don't go as the crow flies, you might be going over that. I mean, it's, it's going to take you months months to do that kind of travel. So geographically, the distance between these places is vast, but also culturally, the distance is vast. For many of the believers living in Corinth, Jerusalem wouldn't even have figured on their mental map of the world. Ephesus, yes. Philippi, yes. Syria and Antioch, yes. But Jerusalem, why would anyone go to Jerusalem? It's not a center of trade. 
not a center of governance and administration. It's not a cultural center. It's a Jewish place, isn't it? It's where the Jews go. And the church in Jerusalem would have been very Jewish in culture. The church in Corinth, by contrast, would have been very Gentile in culture. And therein lies the reason why this collection matters so much to Paul. He spells it out in Romans 15. This collection doesn't just meet a financial need. This collection is about cementing the bond that exists between these believers over here and those believers over there. It's about these believers recognizing their essential unity in Christ, the spiritual unity that exists between them, the sense of indebtedness that one has to the other, the sense of responsibility. So the financial package that Paul is raising as he travels among his churches is about inculcating in these Jewish and Gentile believers the sense of we're in this together. Now, look at the passage again and see how this collection is to be organized. Verse 2. Paul says, on the first day of every week, each of you, each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with your income, saving it up. I don't know how the believers in Corinth organized their financial affairs. Perhaps each Sunday, the believers brought some money to the deacons, that money was put in a central pot, and then the deacons administered it to those who had need. But Paul, here in 1 Corinthians 16, goes outside of that system. Paul wants each believer in each household to put a sum aside on the first day of each week and put it in a jar labeled Jerusalem, specifically for this purpose. Now, in Advance UK at the moment, if I'm having a conversation with my fellow elders and we want to give a gift to another church or company of believers elsewhere, we get in touch with our treasurer and blip, it's done. Online transaction. Easy as anything. So efficient. And most of the people in the church have no idea that it's happened. Most people in the church don't feel, we've got a stake in that. It hasn't cost them anything. But put yourselves in the shoes of a believer in the Corinthian church. Each Sunday, you're putting aside a sum of, you're discussing it with your wife. Hey, wife, you know, how much money have we got? Okay, let's put this amount aside, put it in this jar. And you're doing that on the first Sunday of the month. Second Sunday of the month, you're doing the same thing. Third Sunday of the month. Fourth Sunday of the month. Then the next month, month after that, how many months is, going to, is Paul going to take to get here? You know, they're still doing it month after month. That's going to do something to your soul. And then Paul says in verse 3, Then when I arrive, I will give letters of introduction to the men you approve and send them with your gift to Jerusalem. It would be the easiest thing for the leaders in Corinth to then collect all this money and hand it over to Paul when he arrives, so that Paul can take it with him to Jerusalem. Paul doesn't want to do it that way. For one thing, he's big on financial accountability. He doesn't want to expose himself to accusations of financial malpractice. But for another thing, it's important for Paul that delegates from the churches in the four Roman provinces where he's working accompany their money to Jerusalem. So when they arrive in Jerusalem... These Jewish believers don't just receive their money, but receive them. Paul realized the extraordinary potential of money to cement bonds of unity. Money can divide, but money can also bind. Which raises the question, to what extent are our financial practices engendering a sense of, we're in this together? 
Secondly, we'll go a bit faster. Communications. Two things here. Now, in the space of a few paragraphs, in 1 Corinthians 16, Paul names every one of the Roman provinces where he has a hand in planting and strengthening churches. Galatia in verse 1, Macedonia in verse 5, Achaia where Corinth is in verse 15, Asia where Paul is now in verse 19. And verse 19 is especially striking. It says in verse 19, the churches in the province of Asia send you greetings. Why would Paul write that? Unless he had told the churches in Asia about what was going on in Corinth. He'd he'd reported to these churches, Ephesus and Colossae and Laodicea and so on, that the state of affairs in Corinth, because Paul wanted his churches to feel a part of the, the bigger picture. He wanted to do everything he could to cut against the notion that a local church exists in splendid isolation and is independent from all the others. And the second thing may seem so obvious that we can easily miss it, Paul wrote letters, lots of them. I'm really glad he did. Apart from this letter, we think that he wrote at least three other letters to the Corinthians, and they're not short letters. Paul saw his letters as playing a crucial role in cementing bonds of friendship across the churches with which he worked. We live in an age of constant communication. It would be easy for me to think, I'm an expert at this sort of thing. It's possible, I can't prove this, it's just possible that in a, in a single day, I filled as many communications as Paul would have filled it in a month. Which raises the question, how effective are my daily and weekly communications at cementing bonds of genuine friendship? In his classic book on leadership, J. Oswald Sanders includes a section on letter writing. I was going through that book a few years ago with a bunch of students in Grace Church. We got to that point in the book, and they laughed. Ha <laughs> that dates the book, doesn't it? No one writes letters anymore. Who needs letters? Now we've got email and social media. But let me show you something and bring a photo up on the screen. This is a picture of my desk. And right in the very center of the picture is a stack of letters. Every letter of encouragement I've received, every card I've received from someone saying, thank you, Andrew. And I keep them there in the corner of my desk. I'm not sort of set this up for the purpose of this illustration today. As I was preparing this talk a few days ago, I was sat there working on my laptop, and they were right there in the corner of my eye, always there. A reminder of these relationships, these people who have encouraged me and spoken truth into my my life that has fueled me as a leader. I treasure those letters. By contrast, so many of our communications with one another are are shallow, and God wants to take us out of the shallowness and the superficiality of the way that our culture trains us to communicate. How effective are our communications at engendering genuine connection and bonds of friendship? Third thing, voices into the churches. Now, the Corinthians' connection with the wider work of which Paul was a part, was not through Paul alone. Paul had a wide group of people that he worked closely with. He calls them God's fellow workers in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 9. 
And these people, along with Paul, visited the churches and they inputted into the churches. They served these churches. It happened right at the beginning in Acts 18 when, when the church in Corinth was planted. Paul went into Corinth with Timothy and Silas. And now he tells the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 16 that he intends for Timothy to return to them. And he's a little bit anxious about how Timothy might be received. And we know that after Paul and Timothy and Silas had planted this church, Apollos went in to Corinth and helped get this church established. And we can take from verse 12 that in their letter to Paul, the Corinthians have requested that Apollos return to them, which presents Paul with a difficult issue because he knows that there's a group of believers in Corinth who are saying, we don't follow Paul, we follow Apollos. It's going to be it's a sensitive issue for Paul, potentially quite a difficult issue for Paul, if he now sends Apollos into that kind of situation. So what does he do? What does he do? He urges Apollos to go. He asks Apollos to go. Because there's no rivalry between them. There's no competitiveness between them. Paul's not territorial about Corinth. Paul's just desperate for this church to receive as much quality input as possible from as many good leaders as possible. And Paulos isn't willing to go, but he's not yet ready to go. But Paul says he'll go. He'll go when he's ready. And lastly, although it's not mentioned here, we know from 2 Corinthians that after Paul visits Corinth subsequently to this, this letter, he sends Titus in. So we've got all these people coming into Corinth, inputting. Even if Paul's voice is primary, it's not exclusive. There are multiple voices, multiple relationships, which bind this body of believers with the wider movement of which this church is a part. Fourthly, familial relationships. Three things here. Firstly, Paul's language. Paul uses the word brothers, which the NIV I've been reading from this morning sometimes renders brothers and sisters four times in this chapter, verses 11, 12, 15, and 20. He uses the language of family. And for Paul, family isn't a mere metaphor. We are, in actual fact, members of the family of God and therefore brothers and sisters with one another. A, f- a friend of mine who I, I met up with, I went on a, uh, a leader's weekend away uh, a few weekends ago with a couple of other leaders from, from other spheres. And we were sharing our stories of how we came to faith in Christ. And one of my friends was saying, I came to faith in Christ through the ministry of Rico Tice. You know about Rico? And he said, I heard him preach and my heart was warmed. I turned to Christ and he said, then every day for the first few months of my Christian life, I listened to a Rico Tice sermon while I was eating my cornflakes for breakfast. He said there was only one person in the house who had internet access uh, but she had a boyfriend, so every morning she'd go out, and he said, my housemate and I would go into her room, we'd turn on her computer, and we'd listen to a Rico Tice sermon while eating our cornflakes. And he said, I can't tell you how helpful that was to me. And I said, have you thanked Rico? And he said, funny you should say that. Just a little while back, my wife and I had one of those rare weekends where we didn't need to look after the kids. They could look after themselves for a weekend. And we went to London, sightseeing in London. We went to St. Paul's Cathedral, and when we came out, there was a man that we saw. He, he was pushing a buggy, and he was in a bright red hoodie with Christianity Explored on it. And I said to my wife, I bet that's Rico. 
So we went up to him, and sure enough, it was Rico Tyson. I told him about how influential and formative his teaching had been in my life. And he said to me, my brother, you're my brother, and embraced my friend in a big bear hug. And he said, you must come back to my flat. You must come with me right now. He lives just around the corner, apparently. And he took my friend into his flat, and he said, have you read this book? No, okay, here you are, free copies, writing and scribing in the book, getting my friend's name wrong in the process, giving saying, my brother, you're my brother. Now, our British reserve does us no favors here. We are uptight about this kind of thing. But Paul uses the language of family without irony and without embarrassment. Second thing, note Paul's delight, verses 17 and 18. He says, I was glad when Stephanus, Fortunatus, and Achaicus arrived because they have supplied what was lacking from you. As long as Paul was away from the Corinthians, he felt lack. There was a gap in his life. He missed them. He said, now these men have arrived from Corinth. They've brought something of Corinth with them. They've filled that, that gap. They've refreshed me. They've, they've fueled my faith. Thirdly, Paul's sign-off. I, I love this. This is so revealing. Now, we know that Paul often used an amanuensis or a scribe when writing his letters. I picture him pacing up and down the room, dictating, and this, this poor person frantically scribbling, trying to catch every word of Paul's. But in verse 21, he goes up to the scribe, takes the pen or quill, whatever, out of the scribe's hand, and he writes, I, Paul, write this greeting in my own hand. This letter has a personal touch to it. And then he finishes his letter, verse 23. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. And we know that he finishes his letter because that's how Paul practically always finishes his letters. He always, nearly always, one exception, nearly always signs off in that way. He signs off that way in 2 Corinthians, in Galatians, and Ephesians, and Philippians, and Colossians, and 1 Thessalonians, and 2 Thessalonians, and 1 Timothy, and 2 Timothy, and Titus, and Philemon. That's how he ends his letters. That's his convention. But then he just can't help himself. Given what's at stake here in the relationship with these believers, given the hard things that he's talked about in this letter, he can't leave it there. He then writes in verse 24, My love to all of you in Christ Jesus. Amen. And I imagine Paul sometimes muttered under his breath, those ridiculous Corinthians, those foolish, foolish Corinthians. And yet, when all is said and done, just can't help himself. I love you. I love you. Do you realize how much hassle you've given me, Corinthians? Do you realize I've got a hundred reasons not to love you? And yet, I love you. I love you. And some, it's not in all the manuscripts, but some manuscripts include amen, which is the equivalent, if you like, of that statement being underlined. I've got a friend who, some years ago, this is pre-advanced UK, okay? So, important. He said, I don't like coming to gatherings like this one. He said, I come to gatherings like this one. I'm talking to another leader. And as they talk to me, they're looking over my shoulder to see if anyone else has come in the room more interesting who they can talk to. And I got really defensive. I said, no, that doesn't happen. That's never been my experience, I said. And then I went to a leader's gathering for leaders from across the UK spheres in New Frontiers. And just arrived, he went in, you know, tea and coffee time as people arrived. And I went in 
And my back was to the door. I was talking to this leader who I knew. And as he was talking to me, I could see he was looking over my shoulder to see who else was coming in the door. And I thought, oh, no. We've still got so far to go. And actually, Pete Cornford was at that same retreat. I bet he was looking out for Pete. You know? <laughs> When's Pete going to arrive? I'll talk... <laughs> I'll talk to Andrew Sampson as long as it takes for Pete to arrive, but he's the one I really want to be talking. If that's what was going on, I don't blame him. I'd rather talk to Pete than, my, than me as well. But that, in a nutshell, is the, is the challenge that faces us as a movement. In his book, Life Together, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, now please, this is the loosest of all loose paraphrases, but he says, in effect, let's not build a movement and lose church along the way. Because what we're looking for is not just connection. It's not even relationship. We're looking for family. We're going for the, the feel of family. And fifthly and finally, love. And actually, it's not a fifth thing on the list, is it? It's actually the thing that undergirds everything else that we've been thinking about. Paul writes in verse 14, do everything in love, which might be taken as a summary statement of this letter as a whole. It's in this letter that we find the clearest exposition of what love is to be found anywhere in the New Testament, in chapter 13. Unless there be any confusion about what love means, and in our cultural context, there's a great deal of confusion on this point, Paul immediately follows that statement with an object lesson. Verse 15, he says, You know that the household of Stephanus were the first converts in Achaia, and they have devoted themselves devoted themselves to the service of the Lord's people. And that's love right there. It's practical. It's sacrificial. It's costly. It's sincere. It's heartfelt. And although Paul doesn't say it here, isn't that exactly what we find modeled to us in Jesus Christ? And Paul, in other letters, in Philippians 2, says, your attitude should be as that of Christ Jesus who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. He made himself nothing. Taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient even to the point of death on a cross. And that love should govern all our relationships with one another. We really are in this together, but we're a young movement, and we're still finding one another again after an extended period in which our worlds have been turned upside down. But Paul was at pains to do everything he could to instill in these believers, and not just the leaders, to instill in them a sense of we're in this together, to, to strengthen bonds of connection and friendship. Passages like this one, I think, open our eyes to the possibility of what can be. And the best part of it is that this isn't going to become reality because of a policy that is agreed on by the advanced global team. So we don't need to, we don't need to wait for any such policy. This becomes reality to the extent that you and I are committed to making this reality at grassroots level. So that really does start with you and me. It starts with how we choose to use the rest of the hours that we have together today. It starts with the conversations that we have with other members of our eldership teams and leadership teams on the way home. 
We've got a long drive ahead of us later. That's, a, that's many hours of conversation to be had. It starts with the commitments that we make to one another within our regional hubs. Should we pray? Oh Lord, thank you for this compelling picture of what can be. <laughs> thank you for what we learn of what Paul modeled and taught to the churches in the four Roman provinces. Thank you for this compelling picture of people who are devoted to the service of God's people. May we be such people. By your spirit, would you so stir our hearts? Would you help us, each one of us in our local context, to take practical steps to have genuine connection and genuine friendship with churches, with believers outside of our own immediate context. Lord, we need your help in doing that. We pray, lead us. You help us as a young movement, as a growing movement, to be not just a movement with a great website and a strong brand, but a family of believers united by a common bond because you have made us in Christ. We're so grateful for what you have done for us in our wonderful Savior. We're so grateful for the truth that we are adopted into your family. We're so grateful for the fact that we are brothers and sisters with one another. Help us live in the, in the light of these truths. To your glory. Amen.